Thank you, team. Thank you, team. Well, good morning to all of you. You know, as we were singing that song, uh, we acknowledge that he is Lord over what? All that we know. All that we know. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what I know is kind of my own personal life. I know the things that I'm going through. I know the struggles that I have. I know when things don't make sense. I know that my plans don't always work out the way that I want them to. The other night, or last night, we were sitting together at, at uh, just before we came in here as a worship team, and we're sitting there talking about just life and praying for each other, and my goodness, we have some, stu- some hard stuff that's going on in our lives. Some of our worship team members are just going through some real difficult things like, right, and that's what we know. That's what we know. And, and to stand here and say, listen, I know that you are the God who is over it all. Is, is important. Never, never, never forget that. Well, welcome, welcome into the house this morning. So good to see you here. Welcome online audience. This is such a beautiful day, man. You could be out doing anything that you want to today, but thanks for taking some time uh, to come in here and uh, just be a part of us. There's something in the lobby today that is new. I want you to, uh, I don't want you to walk past it. Uh, it's significant. Our communications team is kind of working this to help us understand the nature of the church. So they there is this uh, stand out there that has a bunch of little invite cards on, and it says something to the effect like, um, change a life, take a card, take a card and change a life. Listen, that describes our purpose, it describes why we're here. If you're not working in any way in your life to change someone else's life, you're missing the point because that's what it's all about. That's why you and I are here. So we have these little cards out there. One says, you belong here. Now, figuratively, I'm going to give this to every single person in this room today. Online, you belong here. That's exactly what we believe. We don't believe that you're here by accident or coincidence. You you definitely belong here. And even if you're a guest, we want to welcome you into the house this morning. It's so good to have you here. The second card says, come sit with me. Now, there's an invite. Uh, A lot of times what we do in the church is we come and we sit with people that we know or maybe sit by ourselves, but we don't ever, ever want anyone sitting alone. So if you see someone sitting alone, maybe take this card and say, hey, can I sit with you or come sit with me? And uh, let's just build some relationships as we work together as the church family. The third card says, come grow with me. This is an invitation to your small group. Uh, Maybe you have a small group meeting in your home and you you see someone else here uh, in the church that is not connected. You just come up and say, hey, come grow with me. You're invited to our group. And then the last one is come serve with me. And this has a QR code on and it gives you places that we need help. We need people to serve and you are gifted, you are equipped, you are ready to go, and uh, we want to plug you in wherever. So feel free to take on any one of those cards out there and use them as an invite. If you don't take them literally, man, just use them, use them as, a, as just an, an idea, right? Reminder yourself that we're here again to serve other people and not just, uh, not just ourselves. So thank you, communications team, for putting that out there. Welcome to our 11th message in this series called You Ask For It. That means there's only two more weeks to go, and then we begin the fall series. Fall is coming, right? Two more weeks to go. And some of you are still asking me if you can submit questions. Listen, the series is almost over, right? We've got this whole list, but you may notice if you've picked up one of these lists uh, outlining all the questions, you'll notice the very last one on September 28th and 20, uh, 27th and 28th, it simply says, 
Other questions? Other questions, so there we go. Now, to satisfy your curiosity, what that means is, yes, there were some additional questions that were asked, uh, and we're going to work through those as many as we can on that last week. It doesn't mean that they are of lesser value because they didn't get a whole service time. It simply means that they came in number 14 or higher, right? We only had 13 weeks, uh, but we're going to group together some questions, so feel free to ask your questions. Maybe we'll work them in. We always want this to be a place where you can ask open and honest questions. And feel free to ask those because your questions might show up in a future message or message series. We don't ever want to be standing up here answering questions that you're not asking. However, today's question might be close to that. I don't know if you've ever heard a message on this topic or in this text before. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to work through this But I'll tell you this, if a preacher could choose any text to talk about, most likely it would not be this one. But because you asked for it, it's on the list. If you've ever heard a sermon in this text, if you've never heard a sermon in this text before, it's because it would be easier to avoid than it is to interpret. So there we go. However, let me remind you of something that we believe here in a scripture that is very, very important to us uh, as a church and as Christians, and that is 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16. Some of you know this. It begins with the word all. Is it up here? Begins with the word all. All Scripture. I want you to get that. Someone say all Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof. That's another word for rebuke. Anybody love getting rebuked? Probably not, but that's what Scripture does. It corrects, and it is is, is for training in righteousness. Let me encourage you today to let the Bible do that. Let the Bible do that in, in, in your life. Let it teach you. Let it rebuke you. Let it correct you. Let it train you. Allow the Word of God to change your thinking rather than using your thinking to change the Word of God. Use the Word of God to determine culture. Don't let culture define what the Word of God is. In other words, let God inform you rather than you attempting to inform God, right? Let the Word of God do its work. The best thing that God has ever done for His people, and that's you and me, is was to give us His life-changing, life-giving Word, Everything that God has done, right, he sent his Savior to save us, but he's given us his life-giving, life-changing word so that we can live by this, right? It's the one, it's the most loving thing that God did for us. So if we believe that all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, that simply means that 1 Corinthians 11 is as well. And it's profitable for something this morning. But let me warn you, if the talk of dinosaurs didn't mess you up, and if the talk about our LGBT friends didn't drive you away, this message might do both. Uh, But we're going to explore this. I ask for your willingness to be a learner, uh, to explore the question, what is the deal or what is the significance of the head covering mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Some of you are like, what? There's a verse in the Bible about a head covering, about hats. And I've had several people actually say to me leading up to this, are people really asking this question? Well, at least one person did, so it's on the list. So let me familiarize you with the context. This shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by Paul to the church of God at Corinth. 
Corinth was a Roman colony, but was located in, in the province of Greece. So what you would have is this. You would have Roman citizens living within Greece, within Corinth, and they would have their Roman traditions. They would have their Roman practices. They would have their ideas about what church and society should be like. Uh, because it was in Greece, you also have the Greek culture. You have Greek traditions and all of those things that the Greeks thought should, should happen in a certain way. And then within that, there's this Jewish population. And of course, the Jews were, were, were you know, following the law, at least when it came to worship, and they had their customs, they had their traditions, and there were others as well. So what Corinth was, was like this melting pots of different people, Romans, Greeks, Jews, and, and even others. So Paul goes to Corinth, right? He goes to Corinth, and he preaches the gospel, and he tells people about the Lord, and people accept the gospel and accept the Lord, and they, they start coming to this church. By the time Paul writes this letter in 1 Corinthians, the church is about five years old. It's kind of like our ship campus right now. And, you know, in terms of age, so people are gathering, they're coming together, but guess what? Guess what they bring? They all bring to this church their ideas of culture, their traditions, uh, their way of thinking how things should be done. It's kind of like what happens here. We all come from different backgrounds, different places, sometimes different church traditions, different nationalities, and we come together perhaps, and we're like, well, we ought to be doing it this way or this way or all that. That's, that's what was happening here in Corinth. And it was causing uh, some divisions. It was causing some trouble and tension. And so Paul writes this letter to address that. And his letter to 1 Corinthians is divided into five different parts. Part number one, chapters one to four, he's simply addressing the divisions in the church. And he's simply making this appeal to live in unity around the gospel rather than being divided by our traditions or the voices or thoughts of the world. And that's it. That's why we come together as a church. And uh, again, we're, we're, we're centered on the gospel. We have unity around the gospel. We all have our differences, perhaps, and opinions and how things should be done, different ideas, but we can come together in unity around the gospel. So Paul simply says, listen, if that's what we can do, man, let's do it. Forget all these different differences that you have customarily and traditionally, and let's come together on the gospel. Part two, chapters five to seven, he's talking about sex and singleness and marriage and how to bring the gospel into all of that. Part number three is verses or chapters eight to 10. He's talking about how to navigate controversies surrounding meat that is offered to idols and every other controversy that kept them from reaching people. See, they knew that church was not about themselves. They knew that church was gathered to celebrate and worship, but it was also to reach out, bring other people, and expose other people to the gospel. So let's remove everything, Paul says, that would keep that from happening. Now today, with this question about the head covering, we enter into the fourth part of the letter, which is chapters 11 to 14, and it has to do with practices associated with worship services. Now, the last two chapters in the book have to do with Paul answering questions about the resurrection, but let me jump back to chapter 11, uh, where this question is being asked. One of the things that was causing trouble in this church at Corinth was this idea of the head covering. 
some men were coming to church having their heads covered with this veil that came down over their shoulders. And you can see some of the descriptions of this or depictions of this on Roman coins and other things. But men were coming to church with their heads covered, and some women were coming to the church with their heads uncovered. Again, which according to the traditions, according to the practices of either the Romans, the Greeks, or the Jews, was not not cool, right? Women were to cover their heads when they came into worship. And uh, so it was causing some trouble. Now, we may not like this, but the fact of the matter is, what we wear makes a statement, The clothes that we wear make a statement. So what you wear says something about who you are. Sometimes it defines your nationality, your wealth, your generation, your occupation, maybe even your position on certain movements or issues in culture. After all, your clothes are the first thing that people see, and we've got to wear them, right? We've got to wear clothes. So sometimes we use our clothes to kind of make us look fashionable, to make us look cool or attractive, to identify with a certain group. Sometimes clothes are even a sign of rebellion against parents, against culture, whatever it might be. Uh, But our clothes can kind of identify us and, and, and bring some yeah, I'll bring some identity uh, to us. And we might say, well, listen, I don't really care about clothes. It's what inside that matters. But nevertheless, what you wear identifies you. I'm a, I, I hate shopping. I hate clothes shopping. I can't find any place where I just enjoy going shopping for clothes, right? And I'm pretty particular about what I wear. When it comes to shorts, man, my shorts have to be a certain length or I just can't do it. If they're half an inch too short, it doesn't work for me. I like to go untucked, but the untucked shirt has to be a certain length, and I shop everywhere to find that, but I can't find anything. So I thought, I'm going to do the most brilliant thing ever. I'm going to shop online. Just shop online. So I did. I went online, and I searched for shorts, long shorts, right? And so I found this kind of this, this tactical kind of wear website, and oh my goodness, this stuff looks awesome. So I'm clicking on this one and this one and this one. I got this whole kind of thing, a couple shirts, a pair of shorts, bought it. You send it and all that. Never mind that I had a compromised credit card over this and all kinds of stuff. So Penny says that means something about this place. But so anyway, I got my shipment in and uh, one of the shirts that came in was this one. And my wife laughed at me so bad. Look at this. Pretty cool. Zipper on the front there. Love the colors, design. I'll tell you what, it looked better on the models. The models that were wearing this, so, so Jeremiah Snyder, you could pull this off. Ben, you could pull this off. This is what was, th- these are the kind of guys that were wearing this. They were built, they were muscular, they were tattooed. Now, listen, I'm way past my mid, you know, midlife crisis kind of, I don't think that's what it was, but there must be something in me that says, I want to look like these guys, right? I want to, they filled this shirt out. You guys could put this on and it would rock. My wife laughed her head off at this. She said, you will never, never wear this shirt in public. And then she shows it to my daughter. My daughter puts it on. She's walking around the house again, just ridiculing me, making fun of me. So someone tell me this would look good on me. Come on. So, so there, there we go. Anyway, what you wear... What you wear makes a statement. This is not, I mean, this would make a statement, but it's not going to work according to uh, Penny. So here's what was happening in Corinth. Some women were wearing, were not wearing the head covering. Some were, some men were not wearing this and some were. So this, this, uh, this idea of what they were wearing uh, identified them on the outside about a particular uh, person. Now, let me read the text. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then we're going to unpack it for a moment. I want to leave you with one broad stroke idea that I believe captures the very essence of what this text is talking about. So here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16, Paul begins, I love this statement. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing to say that? If I could just say, hey, I want you to imitate me as I imitate Christ. That simply means that Paul had this relationship with Christ and he was kind of living out this Christ life and he, he knew that other people could see that through him. Man, what a beautiful thing to be able to say. And then he follows that up with a commendation. He's like, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Not all traditions are bad, by the way. There are some tra traditions that are really, really good and, and are worthwhile following. And that Paul's just acknowledging that. But then he says in verse three, now I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Watch the head language here, right? For no, verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman was created for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the... <clears throat> angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, is it a disgrace to him for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What can possibly be confusing about that? I mean, that is just like self-explanatory. It makes perfect sense. I think we should just pray and go home. Actually, you're probably thinking, what am I to do with that? I don't know if you've ever read this scripture before or maybe any other text. It's like, what is that all about? I mean, that's what I was asking all week as I was preparing for this mess. What do I do with this? What, what, what is he even trying to say in all this? And I found out in studying this, there's a lot of interpretive challenges with this text. For example, when Paul talks about this head covering, does he mean a veil or a cloth? Or does he mean the woman's hair? Because he seems to imply both. Is this saying that men should not wear hats in church or that it's a disgrace for men to have long hair because he addresses both? Is this purely a description of culture at that time, or is this something that's prescriptive for all worship in all times? And I found out that with all of those questions, there are four primary interpretations uh, for this text. Number one, some would say, oh, this is purely cultural. This is a tradition in Corinth, and there's no application at all to the church today. Now, I tend to kind of, uh, I tend to believe that because this is the only place that Paul writes this about, about the head covering. He doesn't mention anything in Romans or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or whatever. It's only in Corinth. So there was something that was happening right here in Corinth that made Paul address this. 
And, and it was with all these different cultures, the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews, they all had their different ideas. You would not believe some of the things I discovered in this. Hair was a sexual like kind of an object, so women should cover their hair so there wasn't they weren't sexually trapped. All those kinds of things are showing up here. There was also the tradition, right, of the the, the old oral traditions of men covering their hairs with this veil, and and uh, women, if they didn't have their head covered, it meant that they were available, or maybe they were even pro- all that stuff was happening in Corinth. It was one of the most licentious cities in the world at this time. And so Paul's addressing all these things, actually going all the way back to creation. So there was something about the traditions of Corinth. But number two, there's another interpretive challenge here. And it says this, the hair or the head covering is the hair, right? Because Paul says that. So therefore, women should wear relatively long hair. And number three, Another interpretation is the head covering. No, it's a real cloth, right? It's a real cloth head covering, and it does apply to women today. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I grew up in a Mennonite tradition. So I remember going to church as a kid, and all the ladies in that church were wearing these head coverings. And so I don't know if it was like when you accepted Christ or if when you joined the church, but that's when you started wearing this head covering. So apparently my church, my childhood church of tradition believed point number three, that the head covering is this real cloth and it does apply to women today. But there's a fourth interpretation, and this is the one that I would gravitate toward, and I think it makes the most sense within the context of this particular passage and the other epistles that Paul writes, and that is the head covering is a metaphorical symbol that suggests an order of headship in our relationships. I believe that's the best uh, position. Now, you may arrive at a different interpretation, and that's okay. We'll just make an appeal for charitable orthodoxy. And all that means is if you disagree with me, we're still going to love each other, okay? So you may come to a different tradition. And listen, I respect my childhood tradition, uh, my Mennonite tradition. Um, There's no one in my family that wears their head coverings anymore. Uh, A lot of things have changed, but I know that some of us live with neighbors or we have some traditions, Mennonite, brethren, or whatever, that still hold to this head covering. And listen, we respect that if that is your position. But I believe the text goes a little bit further than just making this a a literal uh, head covering. So in this text, I want to identify three primary relationships that I see showing up here. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse three says, Paul says this. Now I want you to understand, I'm going to get into all this talk about head coverings, but I want you to understand this, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Now, certainly there's a difference between man and Christ in that Christ is perfect, man is not, right? So when we talk about these headships, yes, we'll acknowledge the difference there, but this verse simply shows us the structure of different heads is not about worth, it's not about equality, it's not about importance, but it's about order. And what the Apostle Paul is doing in in this text is he's setting for us an order that God ordained through which he works. It's a God-ordained order through which he works. Now, you know how this works in any, whether you're in the service or whether you're in business, there is structural authority. There's workers, there's middle management, there's senior management, there's a CEO. So also in God's kingdom, there's a structural authority. 
And the relationships would go something like this. And there's four different characters. Number one is this. He talks about man. I'll span this out here so everyone can see this was man. Now, who is the headship of man? Help me out here. The headship of man, right, is Christ. So this establishes that first relationship. We'll span this out here. Balcony people, there we go. Online. Got it? So this is the first relationship that he's talking about. The head of every man is Christ. Now, what he's saying is, as we set up this different relationship here, he's saying this is Christ's declaration to lead the whole human race. So just take man right now as plural. It is man and woman. It is all of us. It is the human race. This is a declaration that the human race is under the authority of Christ. He is the leader of the human race in the mind and the thinking of God. And ultimately, as scripture tells us, there is coming a day when all humanity, without exception, will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Remember that? that? That's coming. So this man, now think of this singularly, this man in God's order might be a CEO of a company. He might be the president of the board. He might be the captain of the team. He might be the leader of a church. Uh, but this is acknowledging, this relationship is acknowledging that whatever man's role is, Christ is over it all. And everything else that he does is subordinate to that leadership. This is how it works best, according to God. When man submits to the authority of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Christ is the pioneer of our salvation. He's the one that goes before. He's the one that opens the way. He's the head. He's the leader of the race. He is the one that is to be followed. We have that so far? Okay, the head of man is the head of man is Christ. Now, the third relationship goes like this, and we'll come back to the second one, but the third relationship uh, goes like this. It says the head of Christ is, is God. So I want to establish another relationship, and that is the relationship of Christ and God. Okay, now, all are, I know you're probably thinking at this moment, wait a minute, isn't Christ and, and God the same? Aren't they a part of the Trinity, like this oneness? Yes. So while I'm talking about this relationship, there is a unity, there's an interrelatedness here, and there is this equality between Christ and God. But when Christ took on human form, when he became a man, right, he became fully man, he now submits to the authority of God over his life. So there's another relationship that Paul's establishing here that he wants us to know, and this is significant. So here is Jesus, the Son of Man, equal to the Father in his deity, but nevertheless, when he assumes humanity, he submits to the leadership of the Father. Everywhere Jesus went, he stated this. He, he, he goes around and says, I always, I always do the will of my Father, right? On one occasion, he even said in John chapter 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I don't know if you remember when Jesus was praying on the Mount of Olives before he was crucified over in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, right, take this cup from me. Right, take this cross from me. But then Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
right? He's submitting directly to the will of his father. This does not challenge the equality of the members of the Godhead. Now, I don't have this up here, but it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I don't have the Spirit up here because that's not in this verse. But all three of those members of the Godhead are equal, right? But they have different functions. They have different roles uh, that they play. So this is not this is not challenge the equality of the members, but when Christ became a man, he voluntarily consented to take a position under the headship of the Father. So now these two headships, man under Christ and Christ under God, help us understand the meaning of the other relationship, a relationship number two, and that is the head of a woman is the man. Now, hang on for a moment, because this is where this gets controversial. This is where you want to start throwing things right at me, because you don't kind of like this submissive idea. But God, I want you to know, ladies, God is not establishing male dominance. That's not what he is doing at all theological patriarchy. That's not what's happening. What, he's not even suggesting a devaluation in this order at all, but in keeping with the headship structure of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, if man is to honor his head, Christ and God, so a woman is to reveal, is to reveal the glory and honor of her head, which is man. That is, she is to help her husband. Now, this brings up the question, is this about gender or is this about marriage? So the translation of the Bible that I use almost always is the English Standard Version. And you may have noticed that when I read it today, it was talking about wife and husband, not simply woman and man. So within that context, if this is about marriage rather than gender, it simply means that the woman, the married woman, is to be subject or submissive only to her husband and not to other men. It simply means that if the woman is unmarried, she's not called to be submissive to any man because this is within the context of marriage. Now, it seems to fit. And we even know another verse in the Bible, right, that's parallel to this, and that's Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and himself and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything, uh, submit everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. This seems to parallel 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in terms of the headship. All this is to say, and I need to go with broad strokes on this because we have a limited time to kind of unpack this and get to the main point. But all this is to say, God has established this beautiful order, this order of authority that seems to work best. Now, whether we like it or not, listen, we, we can rise up and, and claim, you know, Christian feminism or whatever it might be. This is not necessarily a, a prescription for that at all. All this is saying is that there is God 
God uh, over it all. He's the one over it all, right? Uh, there's Christ who submits to him, and there is man who submits to Christ. And I will say that when man submits to Christ, or let me take this in a marriage context, when a husband fully submits to Christ, there is absolutely no problem with a woman submitting to her husband. In fact, it's something that she will want to do. It's something that she will desire to do. The main issue when it comes between human relationships and deity is man submitting to Christ. So we have a wedding in here in just a few hours at three o'clock today. There's a wedding right here in the sanctuary that we'll be uh, getting ready for shortly. But we're going to we're going to be talking about the bride and the groom, right? The significance of this. And in the Bible, in the Bible, God is actually the groom. His church is the bride and the bride is simply called to submit to God to the heavenly father. So this whole thing is this whole thing is this uh, is this submissive order that God establishes. Now, let me go back to that question. Is this about gender or is it about marriage? Within this context, it seems to be about marriage. Whenever Paul gives admonitions about how women are to work and whether it's to speak in the church or not to speak in the church or to submit to this, it's always always ecclesiastical, which simply means that it's always with in the context of a church. This order is not necessarily descriptive for, let's say, civil service or military, not even business. Yes, women can be business owners. Women can be leaders of companies. Women can have top authoritative positions. The scripture, this authoritative position is only, only in the church. There's something about the authority of God that he wants to work down uh, through this submissive order. And uh, I want to leave us with some applications today because what God is saying is this. Now, you might, you might be thinking, wait, where, where'd this head covering thing get to? We've kind of lost that in the conversation, right? Here's the thing. The head covering primarily was worn uh, by women. Again, whatever context you may come from was worn as maybe a, a sign of them being submissive to their husbands. What Paul basically says here is this. It is more important for us to make sure that we have the heart condition right, the inward position right, rather than the outward position. You remember that verse all the way back in Samuel. For man looks at, man looks at the outward appearance, right? You're going to judge me based on this, sure, right? My heart could be right, but, but God looks in the heart. And I think what God is simply saying here is this. I would rather have the heart submission. I would rather have you the heart attitude in obedience to God's authority and submission to his creative design rather than an outward display. So a woman could wear a head covering, whatever tradition you're might in, and she might inwardly be under no submissive to authority at all. The outward appearance does not determine who you are always. It might, it can, and hopefully it, it, it does. But it doesn't always tell you who you are. Now, I want to leave us with some points of application uh, related to all this. And number one is this. And this is all in your outlines if you have that. Number one, as Christians... As followers of Christ, we are called to live in light of the perfect unity and the interrelatedness of the Godhead. 
So, okay, there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and again, if we had the Spirit mentioned in here, I would have had God the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are perfect in unity. Man, they work together. There's this interrelatedness. There's a oneness there. They have different roles that they play. In fact, Jesus played the role of coming to this earth to become fully man under the authority of God who sent him. The Holy Spirit has a specific role right now since Jesus ascended to heaven. He sent a spirit who now lives within us, but they're all the same. They have this unity and interrelatedness. And we're called, we're called to live in light of that perfect unity. And here's why I say that. At the very beginning of time, God said in the moment of creation, let us, plural, God the Father, God the Son, and Spirit, let us make man in what? In our image in the image of unity, in the image of this interrelatedness, in the image of this perfect equality. Let us make man in that image so you and I were created in the image and the likeness of God. That, that is God's design for humanity, to live uh, together in unity. Now, of course, we know what happened with that, right? Sin came into this world, and from that moment that sin entered, now, there's uni- now, now that unity was disrupted, and there's strife, there's enemy, there's discord, there's jealousy, there's division, sometimes even between the man and the woman, between husband and wife. Sometimes it's between man and man. Sometimes it's between woman and woman. Sometimes it's between church members. All of this division vision, this strife, this tension, this jealousy, this discord, never was what God designed for humanity. And so really what the Godhead is doing right now is they're saying, oh my goodness, mankind is so messed up from the original design. We're going to go to work as the Godhead to restore humanity's brokenness. That's, by the way, what God is doing. That's what he's doing. But see, we're called to live, live that out. And I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus is actually praying for you. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. I'm not sure what's happening in your relationships, but if there is any enmity, if there is any strife between man or woman, if there's any discord, if there's any tensions, if there's unforgiveness, whatever, I want you to know that Jesus, Jesus Christ is praying for you. He's praying for you. Sometimes we get together in our little circles, our little prayer meetings, and we pray for each other. And that's an awesome thing to do. But what is even more awesome is the reality, the fact that Jesus is praying for you. So in John chapter 17, uh, or yeah, John chapter 17 is, is the record of what we call the high priestly prayer. And Jesus is praying for three different people, right? And right after he prays for his disciples, he says to his father, listen, I don't ask for these only, not only for my disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Now watch what he does. This is what Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying that you may be one just as he is one. Jesus says, just as I and you, Father, are one, I pray that they may be one, that they are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Listen, when you and I live out the unity of the Godhead, it is the absolute greatest witness for Christ that we can give to a watching world. 
But when we're living in the division, when we're living divided, when we're quarreling and have strife among each other, right? The watching world is going to say, I don't want anything to do with this. Because they don't see, they don't see this working. But when you and I, you and I can live in the unity and the interrelatedness of the God and the watching world begins to see Christ and they're drawn to him as well. Number two, the second takeaway I want to leave with you is this. In the Christian community, believers, all of us, should treat each other, that's even men and women, women and men, we should treat each other with mutual respect and admiration as we realize each other's God's given abilities and callings. Right after 1 Corinthians chapter 11 comes 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there's this whole section in there on spiritual gifts. And in verse 4, it says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God. Do you notice the Trinity? The whole Godhead shows up right there in the context of spiritual gifts, but it's the same God who empowers all of these gifts in who? In men or women? No, in everyone. Everyone can receive these gifts. I mean, we might even go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we see that, okay, both men and women were free to exercise ministry because it says to the effect that if men and women or if, if a man prophesies or prays with his head covered, if a woman with her head uncovered, so there, it almost seems like maybe they're, they're doing both. Now, I know there's a whole lot of different interpretations on that, but either a man or a woman perhaps could do that. However, it's important in how they do it. They do it out of the submissiveness of the authority structure that God has put over them. Now, here's where we could take off and we could have a whole conversation about women and ministry. What is their roles to play? Are they able to do everything? That's another message or another conversation. But let me leave you with point number three, another takeaway. And that is this. God created men and women as equal human beings, however, with gender uniqueness that needs to be celebrated and embraced. I'm afraid our culture is kind of losing the beauty of this. Uh, we're encouraged today perhaps to fill the same roles, uh, whether it's in society or within church. We kind of downplay the distinctiveness of manhood and womanhood. Um, but listen, I don't know that God wants us to sanctify uh, you know, androgyny or this gender ambiguity. There's something about why God would mention man and woman within the context of this church structure. Uh, verses 11 to 16 of our text affirm that he himself has made us man and woman. So Christians of all people have the delightful duty of celebrating God's design by embracing, embracing their biological gender. Let me wrap it up here with a summary. This order... This order that the man is the head of woman and the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God should be very, very precious to us. This is the way God designed for it to work in the church. For it's the very order in which Christ has revealed himself to us. Christ is the head of us as his church. Christ is our groom. We are his bride. Now, the headship of Christ, and I kind of want to zoom it in to that right there, the headship of Christ over his body, the church, that's all of us. It's going to apply, obviously, to other relationships, but I want to make sure that we get this, because the very moment that as human beings, we fully submit 
to the headship of Christ, life begins to work. Life begins to work out according to this beautiful plan of authority that God has established. You may argue over here like, oh, I'm not going to submit to this man. I, and maybe there's one man or something that you can't submit to. I understand all the tensions that happen at this level. But in the beautiful design of God, right, he created this order for your good and for his glory. The headship of Christ is the sweetest thing because in it is where we find the gospel. It's where we find the gospel. As Paul says elsewhere, Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having washed her by the washing of water with his word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. See, Christ's headship of us is summarily comprehended in the gospel of our salvation. He rules us not with an iron rod, but with the tenderness of his love, the tenderness of his grace. Christ uses his headship for your good, for our good. He uses it so that you can be his glory. Yes, you as the church are the glory of Christ as Christ makes his perfect righteousness and love manifest in and through you as his body. Christ became poor so that you might become rich in him. Jesus humbled himself, taking on the very uh, shame of the cross so that you might be glorious in him. Thus, the key attribute of being ahead is to seek the good of another. That's what God did for his son, Jesus. It's what Jesus Christ does for man. It's what man ultimately does for woman, for his wife. And so as the God-man, Christ died so that you might have life, so that you might have glory through him. Thus, as we keep God's structure of headship with its distinctions between the genders, we actually image and testify to the glorious work that Christ has done for us and in us. And as we submit, as we submit to God's order, we bring glory to our head and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I close today by simply saying, May God give us the grace and glory uh, to glorify Christ in this way as we humbly submit uh, to his leadership over us. Let's pray together. God, as we kind of wrap this up here with this text that has a lot of difficulty, perhaps in its interpre interpretations, in its applications, in its context, my prayer would be, Lord, that we would see this one overriding idea, this principle of what you designed uh, for, for the best of the human race, and that is we submit, simply submit to the authority of Christ. We make him, his, him our head, and we fully submit to that. And God, so as a church today, we just want to do that collectively as we close here today. We want to honor you. We want to express our love to you uh, for who you are, what you've done for us, and for what you want to lead us, how you want to lead us through this life and through all of our relationships. So we humbly, we humbly submit all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.